Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Merry Christmas, everybody. I can't believe it is this time of year again. Oh my God, where did the year go? I just can't believe it. We've accomplished so much at Expat Money over the last 12 months, and there has been so many cool things going on in the business. We've did the summit. We've had tons of new clients. We did our first investors tours. We've had a whole bunch of big projects on the go monthly webinars. We started a new blog. The podcast has grown like crazy. There's been so many amazing things. Now, in traditional expat money fashion, we are going to be doing some wrap-up episodes at the end of the year. This is a look back at the previous year and taking some of the best clips and putting them together in a completely new episode. And we really want to tell a story. Now, today's story is going to be about free private cities or special economic zones or charter cities or however you like to describe these things. There are similarities and there are differences, but it is an overall theme of moving to a special place that has favorable laws that are outside of the normal jurisdiction of the country that these are housed in. So we've got a very jam-packed episode today with many, many clips. We had lots of fantastic speakers come on. As I was really interested in this topic this year, and I really was working on building up my own knowledge base. So we went through and we've cut out some of the best parts. So we'll jump into that in just a second. I want to remind you guys to go to expatmoney.com, subscribe to our newsletter. We're putting out daily content on there. We have the new blog that I mentioned. There's blog articles coming out basically Monday to Friday. Every day we've got a new blog article coming out and we've been doing webinars all year round. So make sure you subscribe for these types of things. All of the resources are free. They're there to help you. So I hope you take advantage of that. So on that note, let's jump into today's episode. Our first clip is by my friend Thibaut Serlet. He's going to be talking about a really fun story, kind of setting up the mood for special economic zones. This story, I I ended up reading all the primary sources, and it turned out to be completely fake. There's no historical basis for this whatsoever. It was just made up by some economists in the early 20th century through some weird interpretation of the texts. But there's this legend that was invented by early 20th century economists that highlights the importance of these special economic zones. The Roman Empire is at war with Carthage, and they win this war, 
And I, by the way, I went back and I read all the primary sources. It's totally made up. There's, but it's just interesting because it's a legend, a 20th century legend about the Romans. So the Roman Empire is at war against Carthage. Their entire fleet is sunk. Their treasury is bankrupt. Uh, their manpower is depleted. There's no appetite or ability to fight another war. And there's this major problem where a lot of Carthage's allies, now that they've taken out Carthage, are eyeing Rome hungry, sort of at this position. And one of the allies is the Greek city-state slash island of Rhodes, located near modern-day Turkey. Rhodes is famous for having this colossus, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this island has a whole bunch of colonies all over the Mediterranean. So although it's kind of a city-state similar to Rome, it's actually a very economically powerful city-state. And Rhodes is making all of these threats and is grandstanding and is threatening to blockade Rome's ports. And all of this is historical. And here's where some of the, the mythologizing comes in. So the Roman solution to defeat Rhodes was that they realized that they would be unable to defeat Rhodes militarily. So they instead decided to hack their economic system. The entire government budget of Rhodes was funded by a 5% tariff that they levied for boats coming in and out of the various ports that they held. So the Romans bought an island of Delos, which was used in the past for uh, ritualistic purposes, kind of an island that had a magical reputation. So they take this island that's near Delos, and they build a new port there. And this port has a 0% tariff. And within about a decade, Rhodes is bankrupt and begs to join the Roman Empire with their hands down. And Rhodes is defeated without an arrow shot or a sword clashed, right? Well, this is a legend. What you find is that a special economic zone is a geographically limited area where the government has changed rules and regulations for the purpose of stimulating the economy. And while you might think of Shenzhen, there are fascinating examples of this that go back centuries and are actually deeply tied in some cases with state formations. Okay. Amazing story, but you said it's not true. It's, it really is just a made-up story, a legend? Yeah. So I read the sources. It's true that Rhodes went bankrupt. It's true that they joined the Republic. It's true that the Romans had this tax-free port of Delos, but all the sources say, if you go back and you actually read the Greece, there may be some source that they're using, and it's like, oh, the island of Delos traded many slaves and grew a lot during this period. So historians have concocted this whole narrative about Delos being the cause of Rhodes' bankruptcy, but, but I don't know if that part's true. Next, Francisco Litve is going to be talking to us about the philosophy behind free cities. This is from episode 202. Free cities is not exactly revolutionary because you already have many examples of them through history, but I think they're the best way to apply libertarian ideas because libertarians, the whole beef with government is that, oh, this is coercive, right? This is forcing something upon people. And with private cities, with free cities, you have the possibility of creating a voluntary system of government. And that's what got me into it originally. That what really hooked me into the idea. And now I also like it because of the, all the other aspects, right? How they can help your business, how you can pay less taxes, how free zones can help you move to different countries. So there's a really a whole range of applications for special economic zones. 
Next, I'm joined by my friend Peter Young from episode 192, and we're going to be discussing why more countries don't go the route of free city and some of the challenges that go along the way when trying to create a system like this. I think it's mainly due to the political system we have, which is a majoritarian one-person, one-vote system, whereby you need to make arguments that sound appealing to many people in order to get elected, but actually may not take into account the nuances of the economics of the situation. I think people in general are not really hardwired to think well about macro questions or large numbers or how people interact in large groups. We're hardwired to interact in small social groups and some of the more abstract ideas about how markets work and how if you have free exchange, it will make everyone better off and it will help to alleviate poverty more effectively than coercively redistributing wealth. I think those kinds of nuances are harder to explain to people. And because most Western societies have a kind of majoritarian one person, one vote system, we tend towards systems that are, are, are in general more prone to, to regulate, more prone to, to redistribute wealth through coercive mechanisms. And I would point to that as the main driver of, of why we don't have Hong Kong-like policies in countries like the UK, where I am based. Well, I think it's also interesting because, okay, I, I'm not an American citizen, I'm a Canadian, but I mean, I watch a lot of the US politics and watching the two parties just go at each other's throat and two years of campaigning and just hundreds of millions of dollars spent on that and so much spinning of the wheel. And you compare that to somewhere like Abu Dhabi, where I lived for eight years and it's a monarchy in the country and stuff just gets done. I'm not saying that I believe in monarchies or having a ruler by any means. I mean, I'm pretty much an ANCAP. I don't believe in any of these types of systems, but it, it's just wild to kind of see the differences between countries and what gets done. I mean, traveling through the US and Canada, looking at the road system, looking at how the public sector is run and the expenses that are used on these programs that don't actually benefit because there's so much bureaucracy is very bizarre to watch. I think that at the Free Cities Foundation and the work that you're trying to do, I think that it's trying to probably address a lot of these issues. Yeah, there are different approaches to trying to change the system. One approach is to say, we're going to try and convince entire populations of millions of people at once that we are correct and run for political office. Or you can just try and build something new and allow people voluntarily to opt into the new system. And if what you're proposing is genuinely better, then more and more people will do that. If what you're proposing is worse, then you won't be successful. Or if what you're doing is difficult, you won't be successful. Now, We've chosen the latter path because we think that there are many people already operating in the space where they're trying to change politics through conventional means. And we've just seen countries become, whether it's, you know, the US, Canada, European countries, we've just seen countries become more and more regulated, the government become larger and larger. Whatever's happening doesn't seem to be effective through conventional political means. And so, but what you do see is where there are kind of peculiar historical circumstances, like those that developed around Hong Kong and Singapore, you do get very large scale migration and very obvious benefits, which manifest themselves clearly to the people that want to live a better life for themselves. But sometimes I feel like people learn the wrong lessons from what happened in those places. So our focus is to try and build new Hong Kongs and Singapores and give more people the choice for the kind of place they live, because 
we think that's probably going to be the best use of our time and expertise, given the number of players that we're already trying to influence in other ways. So how does this work then? Do you actually approach governments or governments are approaching you because they have the idea of wanting to start a ZETI or an area that's for a free trade zone? Well, generally, we would try and approach governments and we would make the case to them that having a more autonomous area within their formal jurisdiction would be mutually beneficial. So we do have conversations. We have some conversations in some Latin American countries. Honduras is well known about. Uh, We've also been referenced publicly by the government of El Salvador. We're having discussions in West Africa. It tends to be with countries where they're facing difficulties and they're looking for innovative solutions. And the reason why we do tend to focus most of our efforts in developing countries is that developed countries became developed over a period of hundreds of years, typically. The UK is the example I know best. And the story of the UK is is a really interesting one of how it became as developed as it is today, the Industrial Revolution, the policies that were adopted during, during that period that led to massive alleviation of poverty, loads of inventions and innovations that spread all around the world, global trade, all of these things. But people tend to look at countries as they are today and say they're a product of the policies they have today rather than the product of the policies plus their history. And in developed countries, if you have a system that has accumulated capital over centuries, you can actually do quite a lot wrong to damage that system or at least to slow the growth of that system before people really will diagnose what the problem is correctly. So I would argue that's largely what's happening in the UK. We've accumulated all this capital. I'm calling from a house today that was built in 1895. Uh, That's pretty normal for this area. This house is still being used by people. We've still got this capital. We accumulated it a long time ago in a period where the government spending amounted for about 7%, 8% of GDP. Uh, Now it's somewhere like 40, 45, 50%. So our focus now is in developing countries because they don't have this kind of incorrect diagnosis of why they are in the situation they are today. They're just kind of looking for solutions. And they see the stories like of places like Hong Kong and Singapore as inspiring because they know that those countries went from a very low standard of living to a very high standard of living within a matter of decades. And they want to learn how that happened. Singapore is really curious because I always wondered when other countries look at a place like Singapore, if these countries in Africa or in Latin America or these other developing areas, if they look at somewhere like Singapore and be like, hey, we could be the next Singapore. But we also have so many dictators and despots around the world. And I think that they just kind of like the status quo. Their life is very good and they're having things their way. They don't seem to really care a lot what happens to the population. So In your dealings with different countries in the world, trying to bring these ideas of liberty and freedom and deregulation, what has been the attitude of the elite class or the executive class in these countries? I think the way you described it is true to a certain extent that I think it's bad thinking to to think in terms of aggregates when you're thinking about populations. And the people that run governments are not governments. Governments are collections of individuals who have their own interests. And people that work within governments are not necessarily acting within the long-term interests of the government and the government's survival. They're generally acting 
in their own interests. So there's an element of, I think, those two interests not necessarily being aligned, that of the individual and that of the long-term future of the country. But also something that I'm coming to appreciate more and more as I talk to more governments and I explore, for example, when I was in El Salvador exploring, like, why don't you just go full Bitcoin? Why don't you just like eliminate the US dollar? The answer is we can't do that because we'll end up becoming the next Iran. Because in the modern world, if you want to develop in a way that does not align to the standard model whereby you borrow money from the IMF or the World Bank in order to develop, you take out US dollar-backed lines of credit, you operate on the US dollar SWIFT network, international payment rails, you respect US intellectual property law, become a member of the WHO, do all these things, then you're pretty much out of the game of world trade. And I think there's just some real politic to the whole thing. Like there are just certain things that if you don't go along with what everyone else is doing and design your country according to the standard development model, which is recommended by the university economists, then you're not you're going to get shut out of the, of the game. So there's a monopoly on the monetary system, the international trade system, and it might not be to your advantage to try and be the one that breaks out of that. Francisco Litve is back, and he's going to be discussing with us the best example of free private cities right now with Prospera and what's happening right now between the battle of the people and the government there. The biggest example we could use for you know a very advanced and very autonomous free zone, a special economic zone, would be Prospera in Honduras. I think this is the one that is also most seen in the media whenever people are talking about private cities, about these kinds of projects, they often mention Prospera. Prospera is a ZEDI in Honduras. So ZEDI is a special economic zone framework that Honduras enacted. The acronym is Zona de Empleo y Desarrollo Económico, so a zone for development and job creation. And these zones are the most autonomous that you have from all the 70 countries that have zone regimes, right? They can basically create their own law in all matters except for criminal. They're still under Honduras criminal law. And it has to be respecting the constitution and the international treaties of Honduras. So they can't do any human rights violations, for example. But besides that, you know, business law, building law, tax law, everything else is up to them to decide, you know, how do we want to best create this? What is the most competitive system that we can create here? And, you know, you're already seeing some of that competition. You already have three of these Zaddies approved in Honduras. You have Prospera in the island of Roatan. You have Ciudad Morazan and Orquidia in the mainland. And they all have different systems. They all have different regulations. And we're now seeing, you know, which one will be most successful. And this is the one that you're most excited about? Because I think that there's so many problems there right now with the political situation. I don't know. A lot of people are not turning their backs on it, but are being very, very cautious with this project. What's your opinion? Oh, for sure. So I cite it as the example of the most advanced zone, not exactly the most successful. Because, you know, you already have a lot of zones that are established and they're making money and they already exist for decades, right? This is more of a startup kind of project. It's something innovative. It's something that is groundbreaking and it also has a bigger risk of it. From what I've heard from the people in Honduras and the lawyers and the people I've been talking to there, you know, the current government hasn't really shut down the Zetis or tried to stop them or from doing anything. But they're also not issuing any official statement that, oh, we recognize the validity of the Zeti law, right? Because just for context for the people that are listening, a opposition government came in place from Xiomara Castro, who is a socialist. And one of her main agendas for her election was, yeah, we're going to repeal these colonialist Zetis. 
And they did repeal the law. That vote is yet to be confirmed next year. But officially, there are a couple of treaties, a couple of documents that guarantee the rights of the Zetis for another 50 years. So the question is, will Honduras respect these rights or will they not? And that's the current standstill, so to say. Do we have a time frame on when we might get some type of resolution on that? So the Prosper team already sent a couple of inquiries, like official public inquiries, demanding a response from Honduras. And I don't remember exactly what the timeline was there. I think a couple months or a year until Honduras has to give an answer. So that's still up in the air. Well, because I had Peter Young on the show earlier this year, and we were also talking about Prospera. He was saying that the assumption would be if they do not reply to this, that it's a positive and they will respect the 50 years. And that's kind of the strategy. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. I'm not sure if I would want to base you know, my entire investment or my living conditions or anything like that on an assumption. I mean, I'm fully rooting for Prospera and and I think it's an amazing project. Part of me also thinks that it might be a good learning experience for other projects going forwards. And even if we don't succeed with Prospera in getting exactly what we want, it's going to be the blueprint and the template for other projects in the world. And maybe we will get a little bit further than we did with this one. Yeah, the lessons learned are there. You know, there's a lot of things to be learned from Prospera. And there's also the platform which they already developed, right? They already created this e-governance platform and the laws and the code for all these systems that are now in place. And, you know, if Prospera closes, they can go to another jurisdiction and try to implement that. So it's not like all is lost, but... If you're an entrepreneur and you want to create a business in a special economic zone, you can probably go somewhere where if you have a lower risk appetite, you can maybe go to Uruguay or Portugal or the UAE, where they already have zones running for many, many years. And, you know, there's a more stability than in Honduras. Here is Patry Friedman from episode 214 to continue the conversation about Honduras and the direction of the project. The country of Honduras changed its constitution to create the world's first program for making, well, what Paul Romer calls charter cities, but basically like special jurisdictions, the evolution of the special economic zone, where the zone has significantly different laws and institutions than the rest of the country. And so I've been working, you know, for the last 10 years or so with countries like Honduras on creating these programs where you can make a city that has kind of its own laws. And it's like one step towards this idea that that we talked about in the beginning, like actually going out and someday making new countries. Amazing. Yeah. I've followed the progress in Honduras quite a bit. The government, the direction that they're changing in Honduras is very sad. You know, it's such a beautiful thing is being built there. And a woman runs on the idea of tearing it down and somehow gets elected. Do you have any updates on how things are going there? Are you still positive about Honduras or is it going to be more of a test run and now we can take these types of ideas to other countries and and carve out areas in there? I'm optimistic that things will work out in Honduras to mutual benefit. So my fund, Pernomus Capital, is an investor in Honduras Prospera, which is operating in the island of Roatan and they're building and making jobs for Hondurans you know, more and more jobs every day. And that's a good thing. They're supported by the law. And while the Honduran government has has chosen to close down the program and not accept any new zones, I I don't think that's a good decision, but of course it's their choice. 
I think that we're going to see over time, like a really big positive impact from the work of Honduras Prospera on the local economy, you know, just growing, growing, growing over time. Well, I can see that because there's a lot of construction. There's a lot of hiring the local population and giving them work and giving back. And from my understanding, you know, there's a real interaction of the locals and of the foreigners and expats who are coming into the community. There's a lot of mutual respect. This is not some colonialist type of thing. This is trying to work together and build something. So maybe under the administration next time, maybe they'll see all of these types of things and actually be hoping that the expats and the foreigners actually want to stay in Honduras because it'll have such a positive effect. I'd like to think that. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone involved shares an interest in Honduras prospering, right? And having like good jobs for Hondurans. And I think that's hopefully something that everyone involved can connect around. Thibaut Sirlet is coming back to discuss with us on how special economic zones are spread out across the globe. So if you look on our map, it looks like they're evenly spread out. But the dots can be deceiving because the U.S. has 300, for example, foreign trade zones. Regular, they have a completely separate customs system. But for everything that's not customs, it's like doing business in the U.S., wherever your location is. If you're talking about the more radical experiments, well, special economic zones are completely illegal in the European Union, although a lot of countries had them grandfathered in such as Poland before joining, one year before joining the EU, created like 30 of them that were just (laughs) empty so they'd have them. So they exist. There's a lot of countries that have economic conditions that are just not suitable for them. So the DRC on paper, Democratic Republic of Congo, has hundreds of what are called briefcase zones or PO box zones, zones that have a PO box address. They're not on our map, of course, because they don't really exist. They don't own any land or anything. It's just some corrupt officials or some sketchy mining dude from like Australia who has a company registered there. So if you actually look at where the the interesting zones are concentrated, there's Central America where there's a whole cluster of them and Northern South America, especially Colombia. There's East Africa and Southern Africa. And then there's the Middle East. The Middle East has a lot of the very radical ones. And of course, there's Asia. East Asia with all of the famous ones. And there's some less interesting ones, but ones that have, let's say, incentives for connected people, uh, kind of sketchy ones in Eastern Europe. Some are fine, but, but a lot of them seem a little bit sketchy. So they're all over the world. There's a few clusters here and there. And how they're run varies extensively depending on the region where they are. Here's Peter Young to talk to us about working in developing countries with free private cities and the corruption that he has seen in some of these regions. How do you have these despot countries in poor parts of the world with corruption that is rampant? I'm curious what their opinion is of going into a free private, free market type of system. Are they open to the ideas? Do they look at it and go, no, that this is not going to be in the benefit of the individual, even if it'll be in the benefit of the collective? Because I definitely understand the difference between the individuals and the government and what's the best interest for the individual and what's the best interest for the government. I mean, I don't think that any of these people are really looking for long-term or trying to do what is going to help the masses, even though there's tons of virtue signaling out there and people pretend. I think that it's all hogwash. I think it's completely ridiculous and doesn't speak to human nature. But that's why my question is, 
in your experience with dealing with governments, have you seen that any of these countries are actually interested in making massive changes like what happened in Singapore, like what happened in Shenzhen or Hong Kong, and they deregulated, they gave back power, and it actually ended up being good? Yeah, I mean, so I can speak on behalf of my personal interactions and then also on behalf of interactions that other members of our organization have had. And I think it, it just depends on the leader, whether they have the right kind of foresight to introduce something new. So the Honduran ZAs, for example, I mean, Honduras is regarded as a country with, with lots of problems with related to corruption and crime. And about 12 years ago, the president of the country at the time decided that they were going to introduce this zones for economic development and employment law, whereby they would have autonomous developments within the country. But it now seems that the tide is turning and that the current government under Xiaomara Castro is very unfavorable towards these zones. So those zones are now in a bit of a situation where they're kind of pushing back and negotiating uh, with the government in order to try and retain uh, some of the freedoms that they've been allowed under the under the law. So I'd say that there is willingness, but we live in a kind of complex world where certain people are amenable to ideas and others are not. And branching out and doing something that is new, particularly in a, in a more market-driven direction, given that I think the natural state of human psychology that we think about wealth as like something that needs to be that is finite and needs to be shared around rather than something that needs to be produced through efficient mechanisms – I think that you're always going to have challenges when you're trying to introduce a new model. And we've we've had some traction in some countries, as I say, like Honduras historically and El Salvador now seems to be moving more in a, in a market direction. But yeah, it's, it's a very complex situation and not always an easy thing to do. Here is Francisco Letve talking about the differences between different zones and the identifiable benefits that we can see in these zones. So I think the common denominator for most zones is that there's some fiscal incentives. So in some cases, you're going to have lower corporate tax rate or no withholdings for dividends or no VAT or no import tariffs. That's the biggest one you have almost everywhere. No import tariffs for capital goods and, and that kind of thing. So that is pretty standard. Degree to which you have the tax benefits varies. So for example, in the EU, you're not going to have a tax-free zone, but you can still have 5% corporate tax in Madeira which compared to Portugal's 21%, I think, is quite substantial, right? And well, in places like Uruguay and UAE, you can get a full 0%. But besides the tax advantages, there's also a number of other regulatory benefits that you can get in zones, right? So one of them would be regulatory simplifications and one-stop shops where for the companies in the zones, they have one place, either physical or digital, where you can get all permits and all all the bureaucratic procedures that you need done you know, from a single point of contact and generally not taking more than a couple of days. So the regulatory simplification is nice. And you also have some zones that create entire new markets, entire new geo-arbitrage opportunities that wouldn't exist otherwise. So a nice example here would be in Lesotho, where they have zones for cannabis and South Africa too. They created special economic zones for the cannabis industry where you can do create weed products and plantations or in India in the Genome Valley where they have a zone for biomedical experimentation, right? So if you wanna create a new treatment that would not be allowed in the US because of the FDA, you can go there and experiment new things, right? So there are some zones 
that open up entire new markets. Well, I did see it when I lived in the UAE because throughout Dubai and Abu Dhabi, there are so many of these special economic zones and they would really be focused on individual things. Some of them had to do with the aviation industry and were very close to the airport. And some of them were doing renewable cities and smart cities. And there were special zones there. I'm thinking of ones in particular in Abu Dhabi. That was kind of a melting pot or, or a hotspot for a, light, a lot of that type of technology that would be brought in. And it was easier to get work permits and easier to do incorporation of the business and hiring the employees all through there. And they even had a university on site and it was all focused around this one idea. So I think that that is an amazing concept because it's one thing right now for remote work. And, and I'm a massive fan of remote work, but there is so much to be said by being shoulder to shoulder with other entrepreneurs and other thinkers and other builders, something magic that happens in person opposed to having to do everything virtually. Yeah, that's also part of the the interest in zones is that these areas, because they have all these incentives, and so they're usually these poles for industry, right? They have a very high concentration of either specific industries, like in the case of the UAE, or even industries that are related to each other in different ways, like that are downstream and upstream of each other, and then they have this synergy and are operating inside a zone. So you also see a lot of that. And maybe another aspect that is, is worth pointing out is how they can also help open up new economies or well, not entire economies, but at least allow you to do business in places that would otherwise be impossible. So when people think of North Korea or Cuba, you generally think of, okay, this is a socialist government, this is completely closed, there is you know no capitalism here at all. But if you look at both these countries, they have special economic zones. Korea has a bunch of them and Cuba also has, I think, one or two in Port Mariel. But in Razon, South in North Korea, you have people working for South Korean companies. You know, you have people doing business in a communist state through these special economic zones, which is kind of funny because it's an admission of the government that, yeah, what we do in the country is not working, but at least let's let's create a small spot where people can do the right thing. In the next clip, Peter Young talks to us about current projects in Honduras and what is working there now. There are currently three functioning ZAs in Honduras, which are autonomous zones that kind of go beyond what would normally be allowed in, say, a special economic zone like Shenzhen, and they allow a parallel legal structure to operate within the zone. So the zones that exist at the moment are Prospera, Morazan, and Orkadia. The two that I've visited out of the three are Prospera and Morazan. As you say, Prospera is probably the most well-known internationally. Prospera is based on the island of Rautan, which is up right on, on the north side of the country, and it has... I believe something like 70 people working there, something like 300 e-residents, and they have the process of expanding the, the site. They have got a, a new development that's a large hotel complex that they're looking at bringing into the site at the moment. They're constructing some new housing there, and it's a place where they're trying to come up with, with governance principles that align very closely to the ideals of voluntarism, whilst also being compatible with the international financial system, the international trade system. And they've done a lot of work on developing policies that do that in the most effective way. It's sad what's happening there with the change of direction of the government, because this is a project that's been going on for, what, 10, 12 years, something like this, from when the founder of your organization, I mean, he was one of the founders 
for Prospera, correct? So yeah, Titus Gable was the founder of our organization, was involved in, in the in the setting up of, of Prospera and involved in some of the processes regarding the, the ZA law that when that was set up in Honduras around the time of 2012, 2013, when that was getting introduced. Uh, it's only in the last sort of three to four years that the projects like Prospera, Morazan or Kadir have started to actually establish themselves and build things on the ground, get people into the projects. But we have seen that there has been a new government elected in Honduras, which ran on a anti-ZA platform, anti-autonomous zone platform, which is now trying to kind of see what it can do to change this model. One of the good things about the ZA law, uh, as we see it at least, is that it had strong constitutional protections. So there are various legal things that need to be done in order for these zones to be disrupted in their current form. And if they are disrupted, there are various ways the government needs to compensate the investors. So it's not a straightforward thing to do. And that's part of the thing that we work with governments on, because we believe that it's the private property rights and markets and the ability for like investment only transpires when investors know that their investment will be protected in the long term. And so we think that establishing strong legal foundations for allowing development to happen is really important. And so that's why when we work with governments, we advise that they look at things like international treaties and constitutional amendments to try and protect the zones as they are. So it remains to be seen what's going to happen with the ZAs in Honduras. It's fair to say that the government has taken a kind of a critical tone in their approach to the, the ZAs. But as I say, the, the people that are working there are working with the government and making a case that actually this is a good, mutually beneficial thing for, for the government and also for the people of Honduras who are a few of which are now getting employed in these zones and starting to improve their lives through their interaction through them. But why is it the government has even ran on an anti-ZETI platform? Why would they do something like this? What is it that they see the ZETIs being a threat to or, or how is it dangerous to their society? I don't understand this part of it because for me, it just seems like destroying a beautiful thing that's been created and so many people worked so hard on. Well, I should clarify that there are a number of different issues they campaigned on, but one of the issues was that they would try to get rid of the ZAs. And the narrative that they're using is that this is an undermining of the Honduran government's sovereignty, which to an extent is, is true because these are autonomous zones that have their own high degree of autonomy. That's not necessarily a bad thing when you think about it. I mean, in the United States, for example, the states have their own degree of autonomy. And if an individual state, imagine the system was totally run by, you know, through the centralized federal government. And imagine a state said, we want to have the degree of autonomy that a modern state has within the United States today. People could push back and say, this is undermining the sovereignty of the US federal government. But actually, it might work better to have a federated system, a system where sovereignty is more dispersed. And, and it's quite common for countries to have that. We just talked about China and we saw that the special economic zones in China were able to be incredibly successful through being autonomous, particularly Shenzhen, but also other places like Xiamen, like Shanghai's Pudong area, like Tianjin. They've been incredible successes. But as we were saying earlier, politicians have the incentive to try and win elections. And you win elections by creating a narrative about what's happening and spreading that narrative. I mean, it was a great opportunity to visit these projects when I was in Honduras, but they're really at an early stage. We're talking a few dozen houses in Morazan, like 64 housing units there, a handful of businesses, you know, small business owners that are starting to gradually establish their shops, sell to people, employ people. It's really like early stage stuff. But 
you can sell this narrative of it's uh, loss of sovereignty because foreigners are investing in these zones. They can they can say it's it's a kind of non-Honduran thing that it represents outside interests coming in and stealing Honduras. There are all kinds of narratives that you can spin in order to make things like this look unfavorable. But what we just say is think about things from the practical perspective. You know, how do you think if you don't think Honduras is going to develop through the mechanism of establishing clear property rights and allowing people to do business freely, then what do you think the solution is? Because the current government says the solution is more socialism, and that has been tried repeatedly in the region historically with not very favourable results. So we say it's time to try something different, and these zones, we're not going to force anyone to move to these zones, but we think these zones should be allowed to exist and offer opportunities for people that want to move there. In this next clip, Francisco Letve and I discuss the changes happening in China because of the special economic zones that are in place and all the benefits that are coming with that. Yeah, what's crazy about China is the extent to which they apply these zones. I think I read a statistic recently that over 90 or 92 percent of Chinese municipalities are either inside a special economic zone or have a zone inside them. So you have them in the whole country. They recently just made the whole island of Hainan into a zone, the entire place. I heard this. Yeah. So they have, you know, not only stuff for business, but also for tourism and for people living there. So the personal income tax rate now is reduced to 15 percent for a couple of years when you move there. And you get visa-free access for 30 days, something that in China is, you don't get it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my wife is from China, so I have a special visa to China that allows me, it's a 10-year visa to go in and out of China. But I remember three years ago, I took my mother there and she couldn't get a visa because she was living in the UAE with us, but she didn't have her residency. So they wanted her to go back to Canada to be able to get her Chinese tourist visa. And she couldn't process it in the UAE because she didn't have her, her residency there at that time. So what we did instead was we bought her an onward ticket and she had 72 hours in the country. So she came with us on a trip there, spent 72 hours. I think it was 72, but it could have been 96 or something like this. But it was a very short amount of time and then continued on. And we were in the country for another week or two, something like this. And now with the changes out on the island and allowing tourists to come is amazing. I mean, that is just not something that's traditionally been part of Chinese culture or history. Yeah, I hope that's a big success and they just decide to do it for the whole country, right? That's the best case scenario of special economic zones. It's when you have the whole country being transformed or you have zones being created all over the country so that there is you know, real access to these opportunities. Next, Thibault and I discuss Iran, another country that is really transforming because of a lot of these special economic zones and the direction that we can expect to take and what to look for if Iran does open up. I mean, Iran has a, is a very free market country. Iran is a free market economy. My mom was in Iran right before the pandemic, and she's traveled to most countries in the Middle East as a, an older woman, but alone. And she said that Iran is one of the only places where she felt safe besides, I don't know, like Dubai, traveling alone with her hair uncovered, which is quite interesting. Yeah, I went to Iran in, I'm going to make up the year, but it was something like 2013, I want to say, 2013, 2014, and loved my experience there. I thought it was so brilliant, and the people were so sweet and warm and gentle, and it was so different. I was expecting something maybe more like Egypt. You know, I've been to Egypt and to Oman and Bahrain and obviously 
I lived in the UAE for eight years. So I've traveled pretty extensively through almost every country in the Islamic world. And Iran was so different than anything I had seen in the region. I really suspect that once Iran opens up, it has a chance of becoming another sort of China type opening up story and just having huge economic success. And when it does, if you want to invest in Iran and stuff, a good rule of thumb when these countries tend to open up is to look for the SEZs. Because a lot of these opening up stories, a lot of these major success stories, whether it's the tiger economies of Asia or China or the United Arab Emirates or Rwanda, first step is always to create SEZs to kind of test things out. That's always the, the natural instinct and has been the instinct of states for a very long time. Next, Francisco and I discuss Africa as a whole, and in particular, one specific country, which we all should be really watching out for, for the Zetis and the Special Economic Zones. Africa is a place that has many Special Economic Zones being built and many uh, private cities really being built. You have Tatu City in Kenya is one example. You have a couple in Nigeria. If you look at Talent Cities, that is a project by one of the big uh, VCs and, and startup guys from Nigeria, Iya Boyeji, and he's creating also starting to create a charter city there. Uh, you have Nkwashi in Zambia, that's a satellite city to the capital of Lusaka. And they also are making it a special economic zone, and they already signed an MOU with, with the government there to try to create a charter city. Uh, you know, an autonomous city. Actually, the Charter Cities Institute moved recently to Zambia. They now have an office there as well. Man, you have a lot of projects going on. I personally have only been to Morocco and Sao Tome. I spent one and a half, two months in, in each of these countries. They also have special economic zones, but they're not exactly the most autonomous. They still have good opportunities. Well, I've been to Morocco probably a dozen times and for months on end at some of the trips. So I know Morocco very well, and we've spoken about the country and the different cities there many times on the show. But tell me about your experiences in St. Thomas and Principal. So St. Thomas and Principe is an island right off the coast of Nigeria, there in the, the Gulf of Guinea. And, you know, it's, I think, three times the size of Floripa, like it's a, a thousand square kilometers, and there's 200,000 people. So it's really a, a very small country. This is kind of the Cuba of, of Africa. You know, they're still very much behind in a lot of things. But the government there has also been, you know, doing some efforts to attract more investment and doing some reforms as well. So they also have like an, an IBC law. They have a, a free zone law. They have a couple of projects that they're creating. There's a free zone in the south, actually. When I was there, I visited the place there as well that they're trying to create and create a new airport. So that is nice. And overall, there's a couple of opportunities in the country that I would say are the most uh, relevant, which are tourism. You know, they're trying to create a lot of things there and the service is still very low. You know, you don't have many options. You have like two really good hotels. Besides that, there's not really much competition in the island of Santome. You have chocolate and agriculture. You know, the place is super fertile and their chocolate is delicious. <laughs> I really think that's the best chocolate I've, I've had in my life. I'm, I'm not kidding. Santome chocolate is delicious. Besides that, also for remote work, I think it, there's a big opportunity there because, you know, it's an African country, very low wages, very low cost of living, but they have the oceanic cables, you know, that go from France, I think, to South Africa, ex going exactly through the island. So though it's third world, very poor, you have 200 megabyte internet wow. with optic fiber. 
right? So I think that's also a good opportunity for a remote working destination. In the next clip, Peter Young and I discuss two very different but very interesting prospective clients for special economic zones and private cities. We talk about Panama and the Central African Republic and their direction with Bitcoin and what this could mean for us all. Now, there's been other countries that have come forwards, and, and this does steer back into our conversation of free cities. And Panama has also come forwards and say that they will not be charging any capital gains, that it is under their territorial tax system, it is foreign sourced income. So there'll be no capital gains here effectively in Panama. The other one that I read about was the Central African Republic. Are you looking at both of these countries as opportunities for free private cities because they're going in the direction of Bitcoin and more free markets in regards to currencies? We are interested in Panama. Actually, our partner organization, Tipolis, is headquartered in Panama, and we have some some links there. There's a project called Ocean Builders that I believe is headquartered in Panama. And we are interested if we think that there are opportunities to talk with the government there and the government's open in in that part of the world in general. Obviously, we've worked already with Honduras. We're having discussions with El Salvador. Panama would be a great addition to that mix. But we're a small team. I mean, our team at the foundation is about 10 or 11 people. And we have a partner organization with a similar number. So we have a relatively small amount of bandwidth. But if, for example, Mikhail, you think that this is something where the government would be susceptible and you've got connections, then we'd be very welcome to kind of pursue as a lead. Regarding the Central African Republic, we have had some discussions, as I say, in, in West Africa, not with the Central African Republic, but Africa is a tricky place to do projects like this, but also in a way, it's a place where more is possible and there's more of a kind of ability to do innovative things in terms of governance due to kind of, I guess, lack of institutions in certain parts of the region. So be happy to look into any of these these countries. It generally depends on whether or not there's a strong political connection that we can make. And if there is, then we would explore it and see if it goes somewhere. Well, big shout out to the guys at Ocean Builders. They're some of my closest friends here in Panama. I hang out with some of the guys there pretty much on a weekly basis. So we're very, very trustworthy, really, really exciting things that they're doing with seasteading and some of the projects that they're doing off the coast of Panama. To circle back to West Africa, can you share any of the countries that you've been trying to work with in there? I've traveled really extensively in Africa, but don't have a lot of experience in West Africa. So... I'm unfortunately not able to share the name of the country with which we've had the most discussions because of a non-disclosure agreement that we have with the government and uh, some of the people that we're working with there. But we have ambassadors in Senegal and Nigeria, and those are relatively new ambassadors. So in addition to our core team, we have people that are representing us or trying to find leads for us in different parts of the world. And there are about uh, 60 to 70 people that are, that are doing that. And we've got people based in those countries. I was talking to Cesare Martins earlier, who's our ambassador in Nigeria earlier today. But, but I would say that it's kind of early days in terms of the leads that we've got in those countries. There is one specific country where we have conversations have gone far. But unfortunately, just due to the nature of the fact that the contracts haven't been signed, I can't really go into much detail about the specifics on that one. Well, if that does get further down the pipeline, then maybe you can come back at some other point and discuss it when it is public knowledge and you can share with us more on that exact project. No, I would love that. Here is a clip with Thibaut and me discussing more interesting zones and what they can be used for. Yes, here's a few of the most interesting, because I think that the potential of this of what can be done for both the good and the bad, you need to look at the most extreme case studies to understand really 
what's going on in terms of what the whole impact that's happened. So not quite a special economic zone, but let's call it some sort of like a special legal area. It's not on my map, but Pakistan had a problem with, there were several villages that were doing nothing but making homemade firearms. Uh, Vice News covered this a while back and selling them to the market. So they tried to clamp down with the problem, kind of like the war on drugs, but they just couldn't. And as a result, jihadists in other countries and fundamentalist Islamic groups in India and Afghanistan and all over the place were getting these homemade Pakistani guns. So the Pakistani government created kind of a special district in this area and said, okay, fine, we'll just buy your guns as the government and sell them to other governments on your behalf. So they solved the problem by just kind of legalizing the homemade gun industry, taxing it, regulating it, which is a very extreme example. Another extreme example is South Africa. South Africa legalized recreational cannabis in 2018. There's a little country called Lesotho. It's kind of a blob inside of South Africa. So Lesotho created a special economic zone, the Bafala SEZ. And what they do is they produce cannabis because Lesotho had not yet legalized cannabis, but they did not want to lose out on the opportunity, but they had a very conservative population. How are they going to make money from cannabis without legalizing? So they created a zone. They invited well-known Canadian companies to grow the cannabis. It turns out that they had a whole bunch of strains of cannabis that had been growing there for centuries that had all of these incredible medical properties. And that's another example of a highly regulated, highly controversial industry. You know, this is not hypothetical, right? This zone is one of the largest cannabis producers, and maybe it's even the largest cannabis producer in Africa. I'm not sure if my information is a year or two out of date. But there's pictures of the prime minister of Lesotho holding, you know, giant bags of weed inside of this this special economic zone with a bunch of Canadians in lab coat. It's pretty amazing. But you find zones for gambling. I know a guy, spoke to him a while back. We had him on our own podcast. And what he was doing is that he's Tunisian. And he found out that the Iranians have a problem where they generate all of this electricity from fossil fuels. And Nobody wants to buy the electricity because it's Iran. So what do they decide to do with this electricity? Well, cryptocurrency is illegal in Iran. So they create a cryptocurrency mining zone, helps them deal with their dollar problems. So you have the Iranian government that's mining millions of dollars of crypto during downtime from all of this extra fossil fuel energy. You have North Korea. It turns out that something like a third of the people who live in the capital of North Korea and Pyongyang work for private sector South Korean corporations inside of North Korea's special economic zones, where they invite South Korean companies to set up factories and use cheap North Korean labor and hopefully build bridges between the two countries. And obviously the zones get shut down whenever there's a missile scare, but they always reopen within a few months with no fail. So the missile scare gets all the headlines and you keep getting news stories about, oh, the zone is finally shutting down. But then you don't hear it and the zone always quietly reopens and the South Korean manufacturers. So really what's interesting is that you you name an industry that is at the fringes of the legal and the regulatory system. And there's a good chance that there's a number of special economic zones that already exist. And they have names like multimodal logistics park, you know, very boring names. And they're already quietly catering to it. And there's no protests, no media attention. It just happens and nobody really cares. 
Patrick Friedman is going to be talking to us on how technology is increasing the shift towards special economic zones. So do you think it's technology that is allowing us to make so much leaps and bounds right now? Or do you think that it's the motivation of people because of what we've seen over the last couple of years of an encroachment on people's freedoms? Or is it something else? Because we have seen a, a massive shift lately. Yeah, I, I have this idea that the 21st century began in March of 2020, that for the first 20 years, technology was kind of changing everything invisibly, right? But like the legacy system were still hanging on and pretending that it was still the 20th century. And that was kind of the cover that was on everything. And I feel like COVID kind of came and ripped off that cover. And it's like, no, wait, actually, like this is the 21st century. 21st century is different from the 20th century in some like really significant ways, right? Cryptocurrency and decentralization and movement to individual sovereignty and the way that technology impacts our lives and like all these things. And the legacy systems are going to have to adapt or die because that's just the way of the universe. So yeah, it's, it's definitely been in the last few years, like a huge increase in the number of people who are open to these kinds of ideas, who are like wanting to live in, in sovereign communities, wanting to design and build their own sovereign communities, which has been, you know, really great for this space that people like Michael Strong and I have been working on for 20 years of, of saying, hey, we've got to find new ways to live together. We have to find new political and economic and social systems. And to do that, we and we don't do that by like sitting around and just talking about it, right? And like going to the bar and having a drink and being like, oh, I hate capitalism or I love capital, <laughs> like whatever. No, it's it's much more, you know, I think about government like a an entrepreneur or like an engineer. It's like an actual thing that you actually build for actual people and deploy and then like see how it works and like tinker with it. And that's what we need. We need people starting societies that have their own like rules, their own different ways of living and are trying out some options, right? And like, those are the test beds. And then we'll see which ones work and which ones don't. We'll scale like more people should move into the communities that are working well, that are making healthy, vibrant, prosperous people. And, you know, that's kind of, to me, what an efficient governance industry looks like. We've got these huge firms like the United States or Canada. They're really big. They're not going to go away anytime soon. They're very strong and stable and powerful. They're also doing a pretty crappy job. They're not innovative at all. A lot of people are like really dissatisfied. And from kind of that place, we want to be building what is the next generation? What are the places that are going to be like the United States was in the 19th century? And it was like, hey, we implemented this radical new political system that Europeans said that we were crazy. The like constitutional representative democracy, like I don't think it's the best political system that can exist. I think we can do much better, but it was a huge innovation at the time, right? It was way better than other political systems. And so it triumphed. The U.S. grew really fast. There was all this economic opportunity, created all this wealth and value. And like, that was amazing. But now it's the 21st century, right? What are the next frontiers? Like, what are the next places that are explored like that? And I think it's these charter cities and network states is something else we can talk about. A network state is a group of people who are organized around a set of shared values online. And then eventually they materialize into physical locations together. Things like that, I think, are the new frontier. In this clip, Thibaut is going to be sharing with us the strategies for special economic zones, specifically for expats. So the first thing to know is look for special economic zones in the countries where you're located. 
and ignore it. There's going to be like a lot of web pages that tell you about what the incentives is. There's this company called Timely Consulting Firm that'll sell you service and they have the SEO and they list the incentives for like almost every country in LATAM, for example. And the thing is that the paper incentives, once again, aren't actually what matters for the zones. What I would do is I would write a portfolio explaining my regulatory problem, write up a one pager. If the zone is private, don't do this if it's a government zone necessarily, but if the zone is private, ask the zone how they can help you and deal with this regulatory issue. And you're going to get no's, you might get yeses. That's the first thing. So start in your own country where you're already based. Approach the private zones there with a one-pager of the hurdles that you have, and then just kind of leave it open-ended and see what they say back and kind of open dialogue with them then. Yeah. And, you know, when we're looking for a jurisdiction, right, for a client, in fact, I'm, we're even making a course so that people can do this themselves and not have to hire us for it. Because there's something anyone could. A lot of it is we find the people who run these zones on LinkedIn, you know, and we explain this is the regulatory problem of our client. Do you think you can help? And, well, you know, they'll, they'll have a region of interest, usually a few traits that they're looking for. And we'll just kind of ask them. And sometimes they'll say yes, sometimes they'll say no, and sometimes they'll say yes, but they'll be insincere about the yes. And But once they give you a yes, you can do more research and sort of fact check. Once they give you a yes, the one thing you always, always, always want to do is ask to talk to the other businesses inside of the zone. And you're going to instantly get the truth from that and always visit it in person. So one, talk to the people who run the zone. B, if you like what they say, then talk to the other tenants. And if you like that, go to the zone. And you can't go wrong with that formula. Here is Patrick Freeman to talk about the power of exiting and voting with your feet and what needs to be done going forwards. Yeah, I mean, this is where the power of exit and voting with your feet, voting with your wallet, voting with your passport comes in. And I'm a huge fan of of exit to the degree where sometimes when people want to like attack the idea of exit. They attack people like me in the media. Me too. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) But just the idea of if you're in a system that's not working, one thing you can do is try to fix it and try to exert influence within it. And another thing you can do is to switch to a different system that's working better. And that that switching is one of the most powerful forces in the universe for good, right? Good things come from trying a bunch of different things and then shifting resources from the stuff that's not working into the stuff that's working. Like it's great. And we, you and me, like we are among those resources, right? That can choose to shift. And so it's really clear that the West is in decline, right? You can look at like Ray Dalio has like actually quantified this and gone and interviewed all historians and made the, made the charts and such. And you can get a, like a lot of mileage out of a declining empire, right? It's not going to collapse tomorrow, but it's, it's clearly on the downslope. And that's why I love working with these kind of vibrant communities around the world. I'm working in places like Nigeria, Malawi, Bhutan, Palau, small jurisdictions that are kind of eager to like try new laws and bring in new people and, and try new things, you know, from within the shadow of like a failing empire, you know, where I sit here in, in my home in the in the mountains of the California Bay Area, which I think still has one of the highest concentrations of wealth in the world. And I think the highest concentration of interesting people in the world, but is also The state government doesn't work very well. The national government doesn't work very well. It's like a failing empire. This is the base from which I 
go out to other parts of the world, more like exciting, innovative parts of the world that are actually like building the future. Going to your comparison of the 20th century to the 21st century, from our side, I think that the 20th century was really about trying to fix the programs in the States and Canada, talking to your local representation or to your congressman or these types of things. I think that's a really 20th century idea. And I think 21st is more what you're working on now, which is, you know what, that's just not going to work exit, build something new, start from fresh. And there's just no way to change the minds of these big institutions. And I don't even want to try. Like I just, I have no energy for that. It doesn't excite me. I've seen people spend their entire lives beating their head against the wall, trying to do this and have gotten nowhere. So I think that the important work that you're doing right now and others in this field and people we've mentioned on today's program I think that so many people are coming together and are coming to the same conclusion that we need to exit, that we need to start from scratch and build something together. Awesome. Yeah, I'm with you, brother. I respect those who are like trying to find the levers to affect the existing institutions. You know, there's a lot of people and a lot of value like locked into those institutions and that's a beautiful thing. But at the same time, look, I was at Google for 10 years from 2004. As a software engineer, I know that what systems really need to be fixed or to improve is to be rewritten from a blank slate. And that's just what you have to do, like you're saying. And it's really exciting that we live in it. And it sucks that we live in a time when like the big old systems are failing because man, you know, it would be nice to work on something else or worry about something else. But as it happens, we we live in a time when what's happening is these legacy systems of government and legislation and money and finance are kind of visibly aging and creaking and failing around us. And that's what needs to be rebuilt anew. I don't know. I think that's pretty fun. All right, let's tinker with that. And that's you know, one reason I love the cryptocurrency industry is that these people are getting to rebuild the entire financial system, including primitive money and like hard money from scratch, which I think is just so fun and, and beautiful and needed and like so very 21st century, right? It's what we need to get away from the 20th century. Here's Francisco Lethve to talk to us about the impact and other benefits of special economic zones. Yeah, I think it's also important to, you know, show the impact that these projects can have because, you know, there's probably a lot of people that are listening to you right now, Mikhail, who are libertarians and who would like to do something and they get discouraged when they see that, oh, no, you know, to create a special economic zone, you'd have to change the law of the country or you have to have a mega project and then, oh, okay, that I can't create a a freedom community, but in reality, you can still do a lot, even if you don't have the you know, regulatory autonomy. In the case of Pedro Branca, it's actually a, a nice example for the governance side as well. They created this private neighborhood, right? And they implemented a lot of best practices. And then because of their success, the city, the municipality of Palhoça changed their plan diretor, which is a kind of a building zoning code to incorporate a lot of the best practices from the city. And same thing for the fiscal side. So, of course, municipalities can't change much in terms of taxes, but they can change some things. And the city, they were looking to attract more startups, more more people. And then, you know, the private city lobbied to do a tax reform. And now Palhoça is fiscally more attractive than Florianópolis. So you're seeing also a number of startups moving to Palhoça. So like when you create a project that has impact at the municipal level, you can start creating a real impact on the municipal level as well, right? If you become a big enough entity that you can lobby for certain things, then you can 
you know, have a real impact on the governance side too. Well, we also saw this with Honduras as well. Now they had Prospera and now I know lots of entrepreneurs, I think lots of mutual friends with you who have gone out there and bought adjacent islands or plots of land or acres or farms of properties next to it and trying to get included in this special economic zone because they saw the benefits, they believed in the project and they saw the direction of how things could go. So things kind of grew organically by people participating. Exactly. That is one of the main points in successful zone programs. It's the creation and location, right? If you look at the programs that are most unsuccessful, it's generally these programs that, you know, oh, you're going to have, I don't know, X number of zones that are determined by the federal government, and they're going to put it all in regions that are logistical nightmares and that are undeveloped. And, you know, because, oh, we want to help develop these undeveloped areas. But maybe there's a reason that they're undeveloped, that it's just very hard to move goods here, or it's very just outside of the way of any economic route. And the zones that are more successful are the ones that have this flexibility, right, in their creation. And this is something that is a good point for Brazil. Now I said the bad, now I want to say something good too. (laughs) Uh, There was a reform of the export processing zones regime, and they changed the zones can be created before it was only the federal government. And now it's the federal government, the states, the municipalities, or the private sector. If you're a a company, if you're an an industry owner, you can request the creation of a zone if you present a business plan. And since then, you already have more than five five or six zones that are already activating or requesting creation. In this clip, Thibaut talks to us about more of the financial and tax benefits for the special economic zones. Through special economic zones, there literally are ways around that 15% minimum tax. So it's not even that big of a deal. For example, it's like you pay the taxes, the zone collects them, but then they give you free rent and they give you free legal services. So if you're doing remote work, you can really minimize your tax burden by locating inside of special economic zones. For example, there's some zones in the UAE that have a 0% corporate income tax with no filing requirements, such as the Dubai Airport Free Zone, which is what I know. So they don't even file paperwork. I think the Cayman Islands has a 0% tax with zero filing requirements. So those can be a great solution for you, even if you have a small business. The one consideration to keep in mind is that office space in the 0% corporate zone is packed because a lot of people want to register businesses there, right? And a lot of them have requirements for you to actually be physically based there. You can't just register something online. So office space has waiting lists and is expensive. But if you can can weather that, then you're in the clear. Suppose that you're doing some sort of a business where you have tourism, like medical tourism. You have a practice. Well, a lot of these zones can issue their own visas. So not just for the zone, but for the whole country. Cayman Enterprise City can issue visas where you... Once you're in the enterprise city and you have a business there, you can bring in like 15 people to just live in the Cayman Islands if you want. So lots of solutions there. Once again, it's a little bit hard to say how can special economic zones benefit you because it's so circumstantial and it's so case by case and country by country dependent. But I'd look it up in your country. So that's really the only advice I can give. In this next clip, we're going to be discussing the concept of stacking different legal concepts. And Patry is going to make a bold prediction 
for the future. Law is like software, right? So you can pick and choose, but then there is work because law hasn't been thought of as software. It hasn't been written to like a consistent API or module structure, right? So it needs to be restructured and there's work that has to be done. If you take law from different jurisdictions, right? The definitions don't always match up. There is like a bunch of work that has to be done to reconcile, but it is possible. And, you know, I'll just say, make the bold prediction. Like I think over time, over the next 10 or 20 years, you're going to see bodies of law changing to be more modular and have clearer APIs and more able to be remixed because the bodies of law that do that are going to work better. They're going to innovate faster and then they're going to get copied more because again, because like law is open source. And so we're going to see a lot more progress and this whole world, we're in the same way, like, oh, I'm going to build like a tech app. Okay. What is my stack? What's my database? And what's my web server and all that? And, you know, I'm going to kind of put it together. You might be like, all right, I'm going to start a city. What's my trust law? What's my corporate law? Like, what's my zoning codes? Let me put it together and then customize the parts of it that I'm excited to customize. We're like, no, no, my community wants to do this. We want our laws in this area. Maybe it's about banning high fructose corn syrup. It's something I'd kind of like to see being big time. <laughs> and like, along with like trans fats and stuff, like we're going to do, you know, the laws about what food products are allowed here differently. And then like you customize that. And just having this whole world of different communities, different countries are each like testing different variations of the modules, different combinations of the modules, and just getting this whole industry kind of operating and innovating at more like the speed of tech. Because it can, because law is by its nature, it's a set of instructions. It is just like computer code. It's virtual, right? In the same way that you can take a piece of code and be like, hey, run it on these thousand computers. Or you can take a server and be like, okay, we're going to change from this to this. You can just by an act of a government can say, okay, we're going to change the laws in this area to be this. Well, in math, we'd call it an isomorphism, but like basically like the similarity between law and code. It's not just a superficial metaphor. It's actually pretty deep. And I think that humanity, like as a species, we can get a lot of mileage out of embracing that metaphor and kind of getting in and building. Next, Francisco is going to talk to us about the actions you can take to increase your freedom with special economic zones and what to watch out for. All right. So the main use of special economic zones would really be for company formation, right? Most zones are for businesses. You have some zones where you can also live, like the ones in Honduras, uh, but the majority of them are geared towards companies. And that's the focus. So for incorporating in a zone, there's a couple of things you need to be aware of. This varies a lot from country to country. So there's no unified global zone regime, thank God. So a couple of things you need to have in mind if you want to incorporate in a zone, things you need to take a look at. First is if there is any local requirements. So for example, in Uruguay, if you want to create a company in a zone in Uruguay, you need to have at least an office inside the zone and people working from the zone, right? You need at minimum one employee there. So let's say you're a freelancer, remote worker, and oh, I want to pay zero tax with a company. That's probably not going to be the easiest option if you're not earning too much because, you know, just the cost of renting an office and, and getting an employee might be too prohibitive. But of course, if you're not, if you have a bigger operation, then, well, that's probably not going to be an issue. There's also in many zones requirements for a minimum investment that you don't have in the regular companies in that country. So for example, in Portugal, let's say you want to incorporate in Madeira and pay 5% corporate tax inside the EU. There, you also have to hire at least one local employee, 
and you need to do an investment of 75,000 euros in fixed assets. So you also need to put some money into the company. Of course, this example also has counterexamples. There are places where you don't need to make an investment. There are places where you don't need to rent a place. So for example, Georgia has an e-zone that isn't even a physical place, right? It's just a, a virtual special jurisdiction that if you register there, you can also have your company located in the zone and paying less taxes. So these are a couple of things you need to take a look at, but for all of them, there's also counterexamples where you don't have the restrictions. Yeah, because normally I work in the offshore markets. So we're dealing with IVCs and Caribbean countries and things like that. And with a lot of these places, there's zero tax on it. I mean, I'm not talking about your home country or where you're physically based, but for the corporate side, just to keep things very clean and simple. I'm I'm not giving individual tax advice. But what ends up happening is with a lot of the banking and the ease of business, it's getting more cumbersome working in these tax haven type of countries. So in a lot of times, you actually want to work in a more established country, one that's actually respected where there'll be a lot less questions from any type of the banking or the transferring of funds or how things are set up. It's also the view when you have someone paying you the invoice. If you have your company in BVI or in Belize or something like that, the person who is sending you money might ask a couple of questions. Now, if you have your company set up in Spain, it's a very established pace or Cyprus or something like this, or we do a lot of work in Singapore, which has a very high standing in the business community. So it can make things easier on a subjective level, even if on objectively, it looks like it's going to be a worse situation having a 5% tax or a 12% tax or 12.5% tax opposed to a zero tax. Yeah. You mentioned people asking questions. That's not even the worst part. The worst part is if you're in a blacklisted jurisdiction and then you're in a, I don't know, a B2B business, you send an invoice and then your client can't deduct that as an expense because it's coming from a tax haven. That is a big one. You're not going to be able to do business. Well, Estonia and Panama, I've had this problem before with their e-visas. And then I've had clients in Estonia before who've tried to pay me. And now they've gotten in trouble and you know it's messed up things for them because I'm in Panama. I'm like, but I'm actually in Panama. Like I really live here. I really have companies set up here and really have everything there. I mean, we're seeing this all the time with Panama. For Panama, it's great for North America, for Canadians and Americans, it's very easy to go back and forth and do business. But with the Europeans, they're coming down hard on Panama, which is something you need to think about when you're setting up your business structures and where your invoices or your merchant accounts or or how you're, you're billing people, what that's going to look like. Yeah. Even if you have a real business with real substance, there's still going to be questions asked by the local tax departments, right? And it's not only that part. Zones are a best of both worlds in the sense that you're offshore, like you're paying less taxes, but you're in onshore jurisdictions. So there's the reputation aspect, sure. But there's also, for example, access to more and better banks. Like in the EU, for example, you can have all these fintech banks like Revolut and Wise and you know just these payment processors that you have way less options if you're in, in the Caribbean. And there's also the tax treaties, which if you're a holding company, if you're investing, that is a big deal, right? If you invest in the United States and you, you're getting dividends, for example, into a, a Caribbean company, you're going to have a 30% withholding on all the, in, the dividends and royalties and interest and that kind of thing. But if you're in a country with a double tax treaty, that goes back to 15% or 10% in some cases. 
or even less, depending on the, on the type of income. So these jurisdictions like the UAE, like Uruguay, like Portugal, have way more tax treaties than the usual tax havens. So it's, it's really a combination of, of a number of factors why you would go onshore instead of offshore. In our last clip, Patrick Friedman is going to talk to us about time frame and the future of special economic zones. Yeah, it's definitely true that the increased wealth and increased technology is accelerating the rate of change. And that means that's destabilizing, right? It's like tough from a security perspective. We all want security, safety for things to be predictable and known and understood. And we don't get that these days and that sucks. But at the same time, in terms of the influence that individuals can exert, right? Our power to like patch and fix and update and even replace parts of the system has never been higher. And so that's the kind of countervailing aspect to that fact that we don't have like long-term safety and security. I mean, you know, a thousand years ago, you could probably make a decent prediction about what the future would be like in a hundred years. But now a hundred years is past the horizon of AI, for example, right? Or it's like crazy, like nanotech that could like rebuild our entire bodies or like biotech that could, you know, either make like every human super, super healthy and brilliant or just kill us all, right? So we live in a time when because of that, leverage of technology and the rate of change, the future is really unpredictable, right? And that's hard, but it also means that we're in a time of high personal impact. And so I think it's really important that good people, which is most people, are thinking about the future and looking at the world and then like taking action to fix parts of it, you know? And I think what you and I share is this understanding that fixing parts of it is not like putting a sign for who's going to win the next election, like in your front yard, like, (laughs) like we actually need to go and build things at the scale where a small group of people can really like rebuild and pioneer them, like the size of like a village or a city, like the projects that I invest in. There you have it. That is our special mashup episode on free private cities, special economic zones, and charter cities. If you guys want to go back and listen to all of the episodes in full, you can check them out on the podcast at any time. Those are episodes 192, 202, 210, and 214. We go in-depth on all of the topics that we covered today, and the conversations are really fantastic, so I highly encourage you check them out. I hope you guys have a Merry Christmas. I love you all. I'm so excited for 2023 and all of the cool things that we've got on the go. I hope to meet you guys in person at some of our live events. We're doing a lot of trips next year. We'll have some in-person conferences. We'll, of course, have the online summit with lots of extra activities there, but just a ton happening at Expat Money for 2023. Have a wonderful Christmas and I will talk to you all really soon. Thanks so much. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand, 
coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.